heathen. It is December. Such a festive season. I'm joyous. Are you feeling joyous? I'm feeling joyous. Ah, bah humbug. The greatest holiday is 10 months away. Uh, which holiday is that? Halloween. It's the most wonderful time of the year. You may be the philosophizer here, but I'm pretty sure December is what most people call the, uh most wonderful time of the year. Well, how can we really know? Pretty easy. There's Christmas lights, there's decorations everywhere, there's uh, winter wonderland, uh, Santa Claus. Do you believe in old jolly Santa Claus? No, no, of course course not. Um, but, But he's awesome when you're a kid. You know, it's really interesting that you say, of course not. What do you mean by that? What do you mean? What do I mean? No one believes in Santa after the age of eight. But you believed in him before that? Uh, Yeah, yeah, he he brings all the presents. So you believed in Santa, and I've got to admit, I wasn't quite that dumb. But I did believe (laughs) in the Tooth Fairy. I thought the Tooth Fairy was real. Losing a tooth meant you were growing up, but also that you'd get a dollar. I don't know what the inflation rate on that is. But uh, I think all this is interesting because we used to believe certain things as kids that we later realized weren't true. You can't just pin it on the kids. Uh, I'm sure we all believe some things that we uh, change our minds about later. Oh, for sure, for sure. But that brings up fascinating questions in philosophy. I know now that the Tooth Fairy isn't real and you know Santa Claus isn't real. Hey, hey, I said I don't believe. I don't know for sure. Santa, if you're listening... I do still believe I'm just playing it cool. (laughs) Okay, that's an important distinction for later. But for now, we believe certain things and change our minds sometimes. But when we originally believed these things, we thought we were right, right? Hmm. No one holds a belief without thinking they're correct. I could take that one step further. That means that maybe, just maybe, some of our current beliefs might not be true. Exactly, my dear wholesome. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we're all going to change our minds and beliefs about something or another down the line. So how do we know what's true, what's real, and what's not? Ah, here we go again. I changed my mind. Now I'm joyous. Don't be ever startled by a Plato knowledge, cause we got a game unlocked. Will Vinny, Vinny, Vici, Mustachio, Nietzsche, and we'll never miss the marks, cause I'm awesome, and he's heathen, and this is our podcast show. Hello and welcome, I'm Wholesome. And I'm Heathen. And this is our philosophy podcast. We're so pleased you're listening to us right now. We both think philosophy, as dry as it sounds in an academic setting, is important and can help in living a fulfilling life. So we aim to make philosophy a bit simpler. Heathen will bring up new concepts every episode, and you, my dear listener, and I will learn together. Heathen has this uh, pretty annoying thing he says where he's on a mission to civilize, and I'm here to make sure he doesn't get too nerdy on you. On to our episode. So we were talking about knowing things and believing things. What did you cook up for us today? All right, I've got a delicious dish called epistemology with a heaping side of skepticism. Now, epistemology is the philosophy of knowledge itself. We're not asking what the right thing to do is or how do we uh, decide what's most just or anything, even more basic. We're asking what is knowledge? How do we know something? And how can we know that our knowledge is correct? Basic, yet somehow that feels very abstract. Okay, so let's break it down. What does it mean when someone says they know something? Uh, It's kind of like they believe something to be true. Uh, But there's a difference between knowledge and belief, right? Uh, So I guess it's kind of like a belief, but with more proof? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I like that. It has to be different from believing something, right? 
say it's raining outside and that Meredith is sitting inside in a windowless room. Windowless rooms. That reminds me of a certain small engineering school in Colorado. (laughs) Well, we can say Meredith believes it's sunny when it's actually raining outside because she's not entirely sure. But it doesn't really make sense to say Meredith knows it's sunny when it's actually raining outside. Okay. Yeah, Meredith can't know it's sunny if it's raining. That's not knowledge. No offense, Meredith. You're you're just wrong. Absolutely. False belief is possible, though the belief holder isn't aware. It's just false. Okay. But you can't have false knowledge. So knowledge implies truth and belief. Anything else? Well, what about if you just happen to be right about something? I've always had an issue with fortune tellers who pretend they know something, then if it doesn't happen, we forget about it. But if it just so happens to come true, and they claim they knew it, what a bunch of baloney. Philosophers and scientists alike agree with you there. You're right. There has to be some sort of reasoning or justification behind it to count as knowledge in most people's books. And those three things right there get us to the traditional philosophical understanding of knowledge. It's a justified, true belief. Okay, that makes sense. Knowledge has to be true, and you have to believe it yourself to say you have knowledge of something, plus a reason for it. Okay, I'm down. But what about if someone has a true belief about something, and they have a reason for it, but the reason turns out to be wrong? Mm, Unjustified true belief? It's definitely true belief, but I don't know that it's unjustified, just not the correct justification. Like what? Uh, Okay, so say Meredith took a vacation from her depressing windowless room. Good for you, Meredith. Where'd she go? Australia. Ah, the land down under where kangaroos wear jackets and they box. So Meredith is standing on this hill, looking around a field, and she sees a sheep across the way. Meredith knows there's a sheep in the field. Does it fit all the criteria? Justified, true belief. She definitely believes there's a sheep in the field, and she has a reason for it. She clearly sees it. That leaves the truth part. Is there really a sheep in the field? Well, turns out what Meredith thought was a sheep is actually an adorable fluffy white dog. So it's not true. But there actually is a sheep in the field, but behind a hill where she can't see it. Oh, wait. So it's true that there's a sheep, and she believed it, and was justified in her belief, But if what she saw wasn't a sheep, does it count as knowledge if there just happens to be a sheep hidden in the field? This is what's called a Gettier problem, named after the American philosopher Edmund Gettier. It seems wrong to say Meredith had knowledge of the sheep, but it fits our traditional understanding of what knowledge is. So what's the answer? You thought philosophy was just old dead people writing about weird things, didn't you? (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's no answer to this problem yet. It's fairly recent. Edmund Gettier is still alive. Oh, good for him. Uh, so is knowledge something other than justified true belief? Um, I don't know. I just wanted to show that it's not quite as straightforward as we may have first thought. Let's get deeper into it. Have you heard of Rene Descartes? Oh, yeah. I threw his name into one of the renditions of our theme song, but he's the I think therefore I am guy, right? Yeah, that's what he's most famous for. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. But what does that mean, and how did he come to that? I'm sure about to tell me, you big old nerd. You're damn right I am. So Descartes was a French philosopher who realized, the same way we talked about in the beginning of this episode, that some of his beliefs had changed over time. But when he used to hold those old beliefs, he honestly believed they were true. 
So to try to figure out if any of his current beliefs are false, he embarked on a path called radical doubt. <laughs> radical dude. He was a skeptic, and he wanted to secure a foundation for knowledge. He wanted to be sure beyond any doubt about what he thought was true. So he set out on a mission to doubt as much as he could in order to uncover the most foundational knowledge. Mm. Think of it like a bucket of apples. Descartes has his whole bushel of apples, and most of them are probably good, but he knows at least a few of them are rotten. And if the rotten ones are left in the bucket, they're just going to ruin all the good apples. So he figured the best way to do this was empty the entire bucket and check each apple so he could throw out the bad apples and then only return the good apples back into his bucket. His apples are his beliefs. Okay, all right. And because he wanted to be absolutely sure, he set a very high bar for the doubt. As in, if there was even the slightest possibility for doubt, he would doubt the belief. He didn't want to prove or disprove every belief he held. He didn't quite have the time for that. It didn't have to be false. Just the slightest bit of doubtability was enough. He started with the easiest. We get a lot of our information about the world through our senses. We see things, we hear things. I suppose you can go around licking things all over the world and gain information that way. That's how babies do it. That's how I know lollipops are delicious and that Nickelback isn't nearly as bad as everyone says from listening to them. Mm, okay, okay. But can we trust our senses? Mm, oh, no, don't, don't do this to me. I don't want this one too. Don't make me doubt my senses. It's not all that radical yet. Think about optical illusions. Okay, okay, that's less scary. Mm. Walk me through, oh heathen. It's kind of less scary, but I think that's only because we're used to it. Next time you're out in the early evening, look at the moon when it's just above the horizon. Oh yeah, it always looks so huge when it's low. Uh, that's what she said, maybe? But then <laughs> it seems to get smaller when it's higher up in the sky where we normally see it, right? The moon didn't change size. Our sense of sight was just wrong. It was tricked by the horizon. Or think about drinking orange juice. Don't you dare touch something so sacred. I, mm, I love orange juice. Don't you dare talk bad about it. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. Me too. Um, it's nothing bad. Like, <laughs> like I, I love orange juice. Okay. Um, are we about to hear weird revelation on this episode? Love. Heathen. <laughs> I love orange juice. <laughs> okay. Well, do you love it right after brushing your teeth? No, that's gross and you're gross. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure the chemical composition of the juice didn't change, but our sense of taste can't always be trusted, especially when we're sick. Our senses get thrown just all out of whack. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this too. We don't even have all the necessary sensory receptors to properly examine our environment, like the, uh, the mantis shrimp. What do you mean? What do you mean? Oh, so <laughs> I read about this on the Oatmeal, which is like a comic website. But check this. Cones are a part of eye, and they're a wonderful part that allows us to see color. Dogs have two cones, green and blue. Humans have an extra third cone, the red, and we can see all the colors of the rainbow because of that extra one, right? But mantis shrimp. These critters have 16 different color receptors. What? <laughs> uh, so not only can we not see most of the colors on their spectrum, we can't even comprehend them. I mean, they mostly use them for mating like underwater peacocks, but, but still, 16 cones. That's, that's amazing. So we have three and they have 16. <laughs> yeah. So like, we like to think we see everything as it is. I mean, if you're colorblind, 
it's unfortunate you see a little bit diminished, but we can see everything that there is to be seen, but you're telling me they have 16. So, I mean, you're right. We can't comprehend what that even is. Like, what, what else there is out there? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's a great point. So with the senses we have available, we can already see that we have a limited ability to fully perceive our environment. And even within that limited ability, those senses can be tricked. Yeah, so sometimes we can't trust our senses, but even with all those caveats, most of the time we can, right? Well, all that up to the present time I have accepted as most true and certain, I have learned either from the senses or through the senses, said Descartes. But it is sometimes proved to me that these senses are deceptive. And it is wiser not to trust entirely to anything by which we have once been deceived. Right, right. His radical doubt. Uh, You said that he had a high bar for doubt. Exactly. So he's saying if we have once been deceived, we shouldn't trust it at all. Mm -hmm. Or in the words of someone not too long ago, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. Wait, no, you can't. (laughs) You got it. You nailed it. That's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So next, Descartes asked, okay, we can't trust our senses. How can he actually know he is where he thinks he is? Get a map, dude. (laughs) Well, okay. He wrote that he thinks he's sitting and writing next to a fire. But what if he's actually asleep in his bed, dreaming that he's next to a fire? This may seem kind of dumb. I mean, we know we're not asleep right now, right? It's pretty obvious. If I was dreaming, I'd be hanging out with Natalie Portman in that one scene from The Black Swan. You know the one. Oh, yeah, the scene where she wins the part. You're you're such a sweet dude. (laughs) So it's dumb to think we're dreaming, right? That's never in a million years going to happen to you. Sorry, dude. (laughs) Well, in Descartes' own words, at this moment, it does indeed seem to me that it is with eyes awake that I am looking at this paper that this head which I move is not asleep, that it is deliberately and of set purpose that I extend my hand and perceive it. What happens in sleep does not appear so clear nor so distinct as does all this. Hmm. Is he arguing against himself? I'll let Descartes continue. But in thinking over this, I remind myself that on many occasions I have in sleep been deceived by similar illusions and in dwelling carefully on this reflection i see so manifestly that there are no certain indications by which we may clearly distinguish wakefulness from sleep that i am lost in astonishment and my astonishment is such that it is almost capable of persuading me that i now dream so the thing is when you're dreaming you almost never know you're dreaming i mean i guess but while dreaming You don't think you're in a dream or even worse, a few weeks ago, it just just happened to me. I had a dream in which I realized I was dreaming. Oh yeah, like lucid dreaming um, where you're you're cognizant of the fact that you're in a dream so you can kind of control it to a degree and make that dream extra awesome and more like your Natalie Portman scenario. Uh, Yeah, um, it was great. That's exactly it. Yeah, lucid dreaming. I had control of my dream and after having some fun, I decided it was time to wake up. So I did. But after being awake for a few minutes, I realized it was a false awakening. I was in another dream. And the rest isn't important, but it became trapped in this loop of going back and forth between one dream and another, aware that I was in a dream, but unable to actually wake up. And it was terrifying. But what's important is that you don't think you're in a dream right now, but... 
but <laughs> uh, okay, all right. Sorry, that had to happen. So Descartes, Descartes, <clears throat> Descartes, help me out with this man. Descartes. Descartes. He's <laughs> it's Descartes over there. Uh, so Descartes says we can't trust our senses, and we can't even be sure of where we are or what we're doing. So we could be floating in a black void. Yes, but he goes even deeper. We can't be sure we're not dreaming. But even in a dream, we know certain things. There may be flying samurai hippos and lakes of orange juice. That's a sweet dream. (laughs) But even in that silly dream, two of the hippos standing next to three other hippos makes five hippos. Hmm. Descartes says, whether I am awake or asleep, two and three together always form five. And the square can never have more than four sides. And it does not seem possible that truths so clear and apparent can be suspected of any falsity or uncertainty. I mean, those are definitions. You can't really be wrong about a definition, right? Can't you? He's talking about a priori knowledge. Knowledge that comes independent of your experience. So math or deductive arguments, which is top-down logic. In deductive arguments, they're premises, and if they're true, the conclusion logically must be true. All humans are mortal. Socrates is a human. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. That's deductive logic. Okay, so since the sentence, all humans are mortal, is true, and Socrates is a human, is true, Socrates is immortal, has to be true. Right, exactly. Deductive knowledge. But how does Descartes doubt even that? I have no freaking clue. As Descartes put it, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but let's just go with it. What if there was a powerful evil demon who was dedicated to deceiving us? (laughs) This is about to get awesome. Okay, so there's no such thing, sure. Mm. I'm sure that's what all of our listeners are saying. (laughs) But what about someone who has gone mad? If we're insane, we would see the world differently than perhaps the world exists, but would we know we're insane? I didn't think philosophers believed in evil demons. So, okay, a more modern update perhaps to the evil demon is the brain in a vat thought experiment. So currently, we have the medical technology to sustain a heart outside a body and to keep other organs alive outside of the body. It's amazing. That's incredible technology. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So say in a future world, we have the medical technology to do the same with a brain. Matthew was in a terrible, terrible accident, and his squishy body was crushed. But the surgeons were able to save his brain and temporarily put it in a vat of life-sustaining liquid. Ooh, all right. There you go, Matthew. I'm, I'm stoked for you, man. Now, the surgeons are waiting for a suitable donor to implant his brain into, but just like today, there's more demand than there's supply, and Matthew's brain is going to sit for a while. Careful, everyone. Heathen is an economist by training. Hey, hey. I'm a modern man, wholesome. I can't be boxed in by your labels. <laughs> a little punk rocker, whatever. <laughs> so anyway, so they use electrodes to hook up his brain to a supercomputer that simulates the electrical impulses that he's in a body in the real world. If the surgeons do this, and using the supercomputer tell Matthew that he had an accident and now he's in a new body, Matthew could just start life anew in his donor body, going about his business as he has always done doing Matthew things. Whatever that may be. (laughs) But the reality that the surgeons and we know is that Matthew's just a brain in a vat. But Matthew is none the wiser. To him, 
it legitimately feels like he's living his normal life. This sounds a lot like the plot to The Matrix. Yes, exactly. The Matrix is, unbeknownst to many, an extremely philosophical movie. It came out in 1999, so if you haven't watched it by now, I'm not even sorry for these spoilers. But uh, Matrix guy Neo thinks that he's just an average cubicle worker, but also he kind of dreams he's a bunch of different other things. Either way, dude says, hey, uh, you're actually inside of a robot giant conglomerate, and they're using you to power batteries and... You were going to use you to go into the system and beat them from the inside and you get lots of superpowers and uh, there's action and punching of dudes in suits and sunglasses and it's just super awesome. Yeah, but the thing about the Matrix that's so crazy is, like you said, he's in. he thinks he's a normal 1999 cubicle worker, but then he finds out that his reality isn't reality, right? Yeah. So he's like jacked in or jacked out of the Matrix and everything, but he finds out he's actually living in the future in some point where machines have taken over and all this but the whole thing is what he thinks is real is not real at all right 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 i should be concentrating on that and not the explosions <laughs> and multiple gunfights but that movie had fooled me uh, when i first watched it in fifth grade i definitely probably wasn't allowed to watch it in fifth grade but <laughs> i thought it was a cool gunfight action movie as well and then and you pull it back and you're like oh wow exactly so much to it and great example of that right here got me thinking let's check this clip out listeners tune in i know i hope you like steak so this is a guy who's in the matrix or no rather he's come out of the matrix so he knows what real is right but then he's talking to someone in the matrix right right so he's in the digital world and he has this to say you know i know this steak doesn't exist I know that when I put it in my mouth, the matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? (sighs) Ignorance is bliss. Exactly, so if our brains are in a vat, or if we're in something like the Matrix, I mean, how would we know it feels real? There's no way to really know. And I remember thinking, and I think most people who watched the movie had the same thought after, I don't believe that we're living in a world like that, but what if? We're dismissing it because it's outlandish and so far-fetched, but we're not saying it's not conceivable. As bizarre as this scenario is, isn't it possible? Yeah, I'll be honest, man. Uh Similar kind of thing. I, I I often wonder. I look around. I'm like, am I in the Truman Show? Are people just Ooh, watching yeah. me right now? You know, or I did. I mostly because I just emulated Jim Carrey as a youngin. Um, but it, you you don't really know. You're like anything could be a camera. People could be watching me. My whole existence could be fabricated. But in a much more um, media friendly kind of way. <laughs> for sure. For sure. And if this stuff is possible. Is there anything that's beyond doubt? These skeptics aren't trying to prove that we're in a brain in a vat. They're simply saying that it's bad enough that you might be and can't tell the difference. The possibility alone is enough. (laughs) That's a a head knocker right there. Okay, so doubting everything the way he does. What does he get to? The only sure thing is that you can't be sure of anything. Quoting him again. I have already denied that I have any senses and any body. Is it then the case that I too do not exist? 
even if his mind is being deceived and knowledge is false and you can doubt your senses and memories, the fact that he doubts means something. Hmm. The very act of doubting one's own existence means there must be a thinking entity to do the doubting. He can't be sure he has a body or that he is writing next to a fire, but he can be sure that he, at the very least, exists in some form somewhere. So another way to understand this is to think of yourself in two parts, as most people tend to do. There's your body, and then there's your mind, your thoughts and consciousness. Now, imagine yourself as a mind without a body. Yeah, I could do that. Um, I could be a disembodied floating brain or a ghost. Sure. Now, imagine the reverse, yourself as a body without a mind. Mm, you're calling me dumb. Not right now, I'm not. But <laughs> forget you. it's impossible to do, right? We can't use our minds to imagine ourselves without minds. The act of thinking requires a mind to do the thinking. Not necessarily a body and all that, but a mind, a consciousness. That's what Descartes is saying. The act of doubting proves that there is a mind doing the doubting or thinking. I think, therefore I am. Taking a step backwards is, I doubt, therefore I think, therefore I am. Oh, okay. I like that. So you're saying doubting is a good thing. Well, we have to be open to the possibility of our beliefs being false. That's the only way holding on to them even makes sense. Otherwise, we're all believing what we want without any means of determining truth level of competing beliefs, you know? Gotcha. So, so it's like saying that we should re-examine our beliefs and figure out how we got there. And in general, if folks are doing this, it makes them similarly open to if, if not changing their beliefs, at least understanding opposing ones. It's not a sign of weakness to doubt what you believe and to figure out where those beliefs came from. It's a sign of strength. Radical. Yes. Yes, I love it, Wholesome. I love it. <laughs> it's what I do, man. So, okay, we've got this skepticism, right? We've got this radical doubt from Descartes that brings us to, I don't know if anything exists except for I do know that I exist. And then he went on to build up from that foundational level. So that's the foundational knowledge, and he built back up, and that's less interesting. <laughs> but there's another philosopher who takes it a little bit further, David Hume. And he talks about inductive reasoning. So we talked about deductive, which is top-down. Now we're going to talk about inductive, which is bottom-up logic. Hmm. And in this case, the conclusion is probable based on some given evidence. So a simplification would be like concluding general principles from specific observations. And this is what we do a lot in life. And there's a Roman poet named Juvenal back in the second century, talked about black swans as a metaphor. Hmm. And uh, the way it goes is all swans we've ever seen are white, and all records of swans going back through history talk about white feathers. Therefore, all swans are white. And it's uh, pretty straightforward. And it was actually a common phrase in 16th century London. Hmm. But the problem of inductive reasoning of knowledge. So Hume said our understanding of the world comes from two things ideas or thoughts, and impressions or sensations. There's nothing else. But he argued that all ideas are derived from our impressions of the world. The two aren't actually independent. Okay, okay. So the, the sensations are what are creating the ideas. That, yeah, that makes sense. Exactly. It's like experiences of the world give us ideas of the world. It's a feedback with that. I can roll with that. Okay. Now comes the problem of inductive reasoning, though. 
The black swan idea made sense for hundreds of years, as in, like, there are no black swans. Every swan is white. <laughs> it was clear to anyone with eyes who had ever seen a swan. But then right at the end of the 16th century, Europeans who had just discovered Australia earlier that century saw black swans in Western Australia. Oh, great. They saw Natalie Portman over there? Uh, not quite. <laughs> but... Yeah, they saw swans that are black. And if you've been to Australia, if you've been to like Southern Australia, I went and saw saw this myself. I didn't go to see swans. That'd be kind of ridiculous. But there were black swans on this lake. And it's just not mind-blowing. I mean, what's so crazy about that? But it's just a problem with inductive reasoning, which is how we live so much of our lives. Mm -hmm. So for Hume, if all our perception comes from inductive reasoning, and inductive reasoning is only probable, not assured – then knowledge is kind of impossible. Now, I think most of our listeners are going to like this next part rather than knowledge is impossible. Hume was a philosopher who thought there was more to the world than philosophy. What? That's utterly ridiculous. <laughs> so he strived to live a reasonable life. What's, what's reasonable about being reasonable? I, I don't know. I don't understand it either. But he understood that induction was good enough to live most of life. He just wanted to point out that we can't really be certain of anything. So this guy is kind of more extreme than Descartes. Descartes saying skeptical, at least I know this one thing built up from that. Hume is saying, we know nothing. Nothing can possibly ever be known. <laughs> Thank, thanks a lot, Hume. <laughs> now, uh, there's another guy, Bertrand Russell, who was on the other side of this. And he said, Skepticism, while logically impeccable, is psychologically impossible. Mm, I need that broken down. So he's saying logically possible that everything is a dream, but we have no good reason to believe that. And I think most people agree with that part. Common sense view is simpler. And he called this instinctive belief. He said that's more likely. And then we should only reject instinctive belief if these are inconsistent with other instinctive beliefs. Okay. So our belief that we're in a real world is completely consistent. So he's saying skepticism is powerful enough in argument that we should have some doubt, but our reasonable judgments are strong enough so that even with that doubt, it can count as knowledge. That feels like a really nice way to kind of wrap all that confusion up <laughs> into something palatable. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Bert Bertrand. Thanks, Bert. Oh, Bertie. <laughs> so yeah, knowledge is a lot more complicated than we think. Yeah, that that took me for a loop. Um, kind of thought I just you know knew things, but <laughs> how foolish of me to do that. That's uh, that's all I've got prepared for today. Can we possibly know? Yeah, <laughs> what can we? It's nice that he tied it all up in a way that felt a little bit more um, concrete rather than the typical I don't know fuzziness that is philosophy sure sure yes that that is perfect that's uh so next time we can talk about that philosophy is like you said it's very fuzzy it's very wishy-washy and that's often a complaint of it like oh philosophy it's out there sometimes this but sometimes not and other times that <laughs> so it's it's hard to keep it all straight next time we'll uh we'll take a look at Immanuel kant who aimed to set some hard rules for moral philosophy so we'll see if that's possible. Okay. We talked about moral philosophy a little bit in the first episode, so he's going to mix it up and try and make it more concrete than what we heard before. Exactly. That was 
maybe utilitarianism, maybe deontology. He's saying, no, 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 no more maybes. This. All right. This and always this. Bam, let's do it. I'm in. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, listeners, thanks for tuning in. I have been wholesome. And I am heathen. And consistently from what we can determine <laughs> based on our knowledge. And uh, we'll catch you next week. No, two weeks from now. We'll catch you in two weeks from now. Bye. Wholesome and heathen do not endorse putting brains inside of vats. He then insists his brain would be so large as to shadow the glass of the vat, while Wholesome considers that malarkey. Wholesome and Ethan do, however, support the discovery and subsequent use of Matrix-like superpowers and, in general, Jim Carrey. He's pretty funny.